Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 142 for the 10th of April, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin once again. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. It's turned into an exciting week, hasn't it? Yeah, the uh, the the Twitterers are a Twitterin' about the uh, the the hash heartbleed SSL vulnerability that seems to have taken uh, not just the security world by storm, but uh, even even mainstream media seems to be paying attention for once to a, a rather concerning uh, vulnerability in OpenSSL. Yes, uh, OpenSSL it does SSL, or as we should probably call it these days, TLS. It puts the S in HTTPS, the padlock in the address bar for an awful lot of websites. And when you've got a secure connection, uh, for about the last two years, there's this feature called TLS Heartbeat, where one end can send a packet to the other with some random data in it, say, just a small string, and the other end copies that data out and sends it back. And that way, A, you keep the connection alive, which is handy, and B, because there's data that's sent in and then returned, each end can tell that the encryption's actually working properly. Problem is, you can send it a tiny request packet, but say, oh, by the way, I sent you 64 kilobytes. And it will copy whatever's in the request packet, followed by the 64K, which is next to it in memory on the heap. So you can get back semi-random stuff that OpenSSL has processed before. It turns out that that can pretty much include anything. Yeah, I've seen a lot of focus on people uh, being concerned about, for example, private keys that the web server is using to communicate with clients, but also people claiming to have recovered usernames, passwords, birth dates, you know, pretty much anything that's sent through the secure connection could be in that memory space or, or you know, in, in nearby the, the buffer, I guess, that, that's being overrun, right? This is a traditional buffer overrun. Yes, and most people, when they think buffer overflow, they think what you do is you send more data to an app than it can tolerate, blow over the end of a buffer, inject some shell code, get a remote code execution. But actually, buffer overflows can be dangerous the other way around. Here you send it a tiny bit of information, too little if you like, and say, oh, by the way, when you reply, I actually need you to send more than I sent in. And it goes and scoops up what's next to your request in memory. So the problem here is that the buffer overflow is actually what gets sent out rather than what gets sent in. And since a web server is supposed to be secure and not supposed to leak keys and contents of other people's data, this does represent a serious problem. And if you run a web server that uses OpenSSL, get on to fixing it right away. Well, and I think that's um, part of the reason there's been such a reaction, right? It turns out that web servers like Apache and Nginx use OpenSSL by default and they represent about two-thirds of the web servers on the internet. Now, that does not mean that all of those servers were, in fact, vulnerable. This only occurs in version 1.01 through 1.01f of OpenSSL. So old web servers or servers using older versions of OpenSSL are not vulnerable. However, when you consider that two-thirds of the web is running an OpenSSL-capable web server, that's a lot of boxes, even if some of them aren't vulnerable, isn't it? Yes, so I guess a lot of sysadmins are quite busy at the moment. (laughs) Exactly. Chester, one question that somebody asked on Naked Security, which is a very good one, is what about the other way around? It's not just a problem of a client computer sending a malicious heartbeat request to a server. 
it can actually be done the other way around. So in theory, if you're browsing to a site and you get taken to a rogue server, it could try and send a heartbeat to your browser in the hope that your browser might spill some secrets. For example, URLs you browsed to earlier, contents of a webmail you just typed in, and so on. So that was a very reasonable concern. The very good news is that at least the four main browsers people are likely to use, that's IE on Windows, Safari on OS X, and Firefox and Chrome slash Chromium on all platforms, none of those use OpenSSL. So in fact, when you're browsing, your client is almost certainly not at risk of someone at the other end trying to bleed information out of memory on your PC, uh, which is a nice relief. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for people that are worried about this, um, you know, there is a fix available, 1.0.1G. If you are a, an admin running a vulnerable service, you should be able to update to that. Um, in your naked security post, you pointed out that you can pass a parameter to the compiler to disable the heartbeat functionality, which will also kind of fix the problem, make sure that you're not vulnerable to it. As a user, things get a little more complicated, right? Because, I mean, people are being advised to change all their passwords and you know, I'm not sure how far to go with some of this stuff. Personally, I have hundreds of passwords on websites. It would be quite uh, burdensome to worry about all of them. And, and many of them may not even be, you know, websites that are using a vulnerable server. I mean, what do you recommend people do? That's one of those dreadful questions, isn't it? You don't want to say, oh, don't worry, she'll be right, there's no problem. Because in theory, for up to two years, a server that you've been connecting to over TLS and sharing sensitive information with, like your password, could have had someone else connecting to it and bleeding out random lumps of data, which probably doesn't include your password, but might. So I think what some people are saying, look, this is like when you've used your credit card and you weren't so sure about the coffee shop or the pub or the restaurant, and you think, should I go and replace it because I wonder if I got skimmed? Well, that's quite complicated. Surely changing your password's really easy, so why not just go and do it anyway as a precaution? Unfortunately, in this case, there is one condition under which it might be a very bad idea, and that's if the site you're going to change your password on is vulnerable and hasn't been patched yet. For all that NSA, GCHQ, whoever might have been snooping on your stuff in the past, the one thing you can be absolutely sure of, because of the massive publicity around this thing, somebody's taking a look now. It seems to become a little bit of a hobby for techies to go around and see which websites are vulnerable and see what information they can get out. Yeah, and, and what I was recommending to folks uh, is the folks over at Qualys run a service called SSL Labs, and they have a webpage you can go to sslabs.com slash sslTest. And I'm not endorsing Qualys' products here necessarily, but um, the service they have on that webpage is fantastic. It takes about a minute or two, and it tells you all kinds of things about the security of certificate handling and protocols and all that stuff, including the heart bleed. And so it's a good way to check and see if the server, in fact, uh, is safe to change your password on. Well, in other news this week, of course, we had the final Patch Tuesday for Windows XP, but more importantly... Uh, I'm sure chat chat listeners are not running Windows XP, so let's just talk about the patches because they patch many things for many operating systems and products that are not Windows XP. Um, but the, I think the one we were kind of waiting with bated breath for, the most important one, is MS14017, the first patch released by Microsoft this week, which covered the Word Zero Day that you wrote about on Naked Security a couple weeks ago. So uh, I guess we can be safe from RTFs now? Yes, uh, that was the fault that meant that you could send someone a booby-trapped RTF file 
or even embed it into Outlook. If Outlook was set up to use Word, uh, it could crash Word and uh, give control to the bad guys. Fortunately, the only attacks that are known apply to Office 2010, but Microsoft, bless their hearts, said, look, we've got to admit the vulnerable code is in pretty much all versions of Word, including Word for Mac, so they've patched a lot of them. So this is a patch Tuesday, even for Mac users, if you have Word. And that's definitely worth getting. As always, when there's a zero day, it means the crooks are already ahead. And of course, the patch does apply to Office 2003, which won't be getting any patches after this one. So this would be a very bad one to miss. Yeah, absolutely. It even covers Surface RT users of Office. So Both of them, Chester. Uh, yeah, both of them, yes. And, uh, the, and, more, and the next one's really important as well, MS-14018. Uh, covers uh, it's an Internet Explorer roll-up fix, I guess is what we would call it. There's six vulnerabilities in Internet Explorer that were privately disclosed to Microsoft, and it affects all versions of IE from 6 through 11, again, including Windows RT 8.1. With the exception of IE 10. And we don't know why. I guess it just happened not to have any of the vulnerable code in, which is uh, good fortune. Um, in other patch news as well, there was... Adobe Flash and Adobe Air were fixed. There was four vulnerabilities. Reminded me a bit of our Techno podcast from a couple months ago when we went through the different types of vulnerabilities because it turns out in the, in the Adobe Security Bulletin, they listed the four different uh, flaws that were fixed in this update, and it was sort of a kind of a, a dealer's choice. There was one use-after-free vulnerability, one buffer overflow, one security bypass, and one cross-site scripting vulnerability. So... Uh, Time to update Flash, folks. All they were missing was a heart bleed, eh? Well, I don't think we need another one of those. No, one a week's more than enough. Um, but, uh, it, you know, people may notice that they're, you know, on, on Windows and Mac, that their Flash was updated a major version update. So it's no longer Flash 12. They've moved on to Flash 13. Um, the fix for Linux was for Flash 11.2. Um, we aren't likely to see a lot more fixes for Linux. Adobe's going to be discontinuing Flash for Linux soon. Hopefully that indicates the larger imminent death of Flash now that it's unsupported on iOS, it's unsupported on Android, and it will soon be unsupported on Linux. But because of its ubiquity, it is still being patched and updated for Windows and Mac, so get those fixes on there. You can get them at get.adobe.com slash Flash Player. And uh, do remember that you have to opt out of the foistware. So maybe if you don't need Flash anymore, one other advantage would be that you won't get that foistware. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, um, no more installation of Chrome when you're a Firefox user. And, and, and ironically, Chrome has Flash embedded in it, so you never need to download Flash again if you accept the Chrome. So I guess maybe it's just a sort of a, a way to end the loop. I'm go I have to mention the end of XP because it, it uh, was one of the biggest topics this week, but I don't have a lot to say about it other than Passing along kind of my opinion of it, which is I heard a lot of people scrambling about, oh, you know, the UK is buying patches for this and this company's buying patches for that. And what about the ATMs? And my advice to people is if you have XP, don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Worry about what you're going to do about it. Have a plan to get off of it. If you're truly well and truly stuck with it with some sort of investment in some kind of industrial equipment that has to be operated from it or something, fair enough. Figure out what your plan is to isolate it, right? But worry about your own copies and get off of it as quickly as you can. Um, it's just not prudent to run something that's uh, 12 and a half years old, has, you know, a lack of mitigation technologies, 
and isn't going to get fixes anymore. I mean, I don't care what the excuses are. I don't find any of them to be terribly valid. No, and we've talked about this uh, several times before. The big thing that is missing from XP that is in Vista and all later versions of Windows is address space layout randomization. That's where things like DLLs and programs and the stack, things in memory that hackers have traditionally used knowledge about in order to pwn your computer from the outside, those are now moved around randomly. It doesn't make it impossible for an attacker to break in, but it makes it harder. And because XP does not support ASLR and it can't easily be backported, that's one of the main reasons, I would say, why Microsoft has said, look, we really have to push this over the edge of the cliff now um, because we want you to move on to systems that were designed with security more in mind right from the start. So you can criticize Microsoft that they didn't have this stuff in XP, but I think this thing about, oh, it's just an excuse to rot more money out of me. You know, I have to spend $100 every 10 years. That's a bit of a red herring. The deal is that the newer versions of the operating system have some foundations in there which cannot be fitted to XP and which make the newer systems much more secure, not just for you, but for everybody around you on the Internet. Yeah, I don't know anyone who's tried to retrofit airbags to their 1965 and a half Mustang convertible. Like, it's just, it's one of these things that's either designed as part of the system or it isn't. And um, safety and security on your computer is important. Um, I'm, I joked in a previous chat chat that at least XP users won't have to worry about any more patches after uh, April the 8th. And uh, some people seem to have taken it too seriously. <laughs> oh, dear. Didn't that come back to bite you? Yeah. What's with that? Who really thinks that's good advice? Are you serious? I guess to summarize, Chester, you were joking when you said the nice thing about the end of patches is you won't have to worry anymore. You might not have to worry, but the rest of us certainly will. Well, I think you'll have to worry. You just won't have to worry about patching. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of patches, I mean, uh, Apple released an update for their Safari web browser for OS X, fixing a lot of vulnerabilities, including stuff that was found at this year's Pwn to Own contest here in Vancouver uh, at CanSec West. But there were some lingering bits and pieces that were quite surprising to me. I saw some 2013s referenced in this fix. Like, what's the deal? Yes, and there were four CVE 2013s. One was from November, but three of them were from back in April 2013, a year ago. 26 remote code execution holes and one sandbox bypass in total. So to those people who've written in high dudgeon, to naked security in the recent past to say, oh, it would be crazy for Apple to get onto a monthly update cycle because, hey, they just don't need to update that often. And so, so many months, there just wouldn't be an update. This is kind of the indication that perhaps greater regularity and frequency really is important. They were the pwn to own bugs. They're less than a month old. Apple did a great job to fix them promptly within the month. But there are these, as you say, lingering sores from a year ago uh, it's a real pity that they weren't fixed long before. Uh, if you are using Snow Leopard, you are out in the cold. Uh, as our colleague John Zorobedian put it the other week, uh, no Safari patches for you, and it isn't looking ever less likely that you're ever going to get any. So this patch only applies to Lion, Mountain Lion, and Mavericks. That's 10.7, 10.8, and 10.9 users. Um, at this point, if you're on... 
Snow Leopard, you're in the similar boat of Windows XP users where you've kind of gotten some kind of update sort of recently, but there's no indication you're ever going to get another one. Well, I disagree. I'd say the XP situation is actually a lot better because Microsoft have been saying for seven years, it will be the 8th of April 2014 that the last patches come out, that's that. You know, they've been quite clear about it. Whether you agree with that, whether you like it, whether you hate it, doesn't matter. At least there's been absolute clarity on when the end's coming. And really, Apple need to do that with Snow Leopard. It's either supported or it's not. It can't be somewhere in the middle. I think Apple users would be thrilled if, um, you know, Apple supported operating systems for 12 years like Microsoft has. So perhaps the comparisons of Apple users always making it out like they're superior. They need to take a look in the mirror and see what's really going on here. Uh, Perhaps Windows users actually do have it better. Yes, of course, since Apple only allow you to run the Apple operating system on Apple hardware, they can pretend to support the operating system for three millennia. They just say, sorry, we don't support the hardware you bought seven years ago. But as we've said, Snow Leopard, come on, Apple, tell us what the story is. It's not that hard. Well, on that note, I'm going to conclude Sophos Security Chat Chat 142. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For this podcast and all of our other podcasts, including the techno and uh, things that we do like that, you can go to soundcloud.com slash sophos security. And until next time, stay secure.